0: Chapters forty-seven and forty-eight of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. and Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter forty-seven. Mother and Son. The recovery of Elfrida Force was very rapid. When she awoke from sleep on the morning after her interview with her husband, she felt so free from pain and weariness, so refreshed in mind and body, that she wished to get up and dress and go down into the drawing room to join her family circle. This, the nurse, dissuaded her from doing, but advised her to put on a wrapper, sit in an easy chair, and receive any friends she might wish to see in her own room. The first one she asked for was her husband. Abel Force came quickly, dismissed the attendant from the room, and sat down beside her, holding her hand in his own a few moments before either spoke. The squire was the first to break the eloquent silence. "'Dearest, you will be glad to hear that our Roland is at liberty,' is fully exonerated. "'Thank heaven,' breathed the mother. "'The morning's papers give us the information "'that Stukely will be yielded up to the British authorities, "'and will leave Washington to-day for New York, "'to sail on the Scotia, on Saturday, for Liverpool. "'Thank heaven,' again breathed Elfrida Force. "'I have had an explanation with our friends and neighbours, "'have told them all that they need to know, and nothing more,' "'continued the squire. "'For the first time since his entrance the lady looked uneasy.' "'Do not distress yourself, my dear. "'I will tell you all that I said, and how I said it,' he added. "'And then he repeated, nearly word for word, "'all that had passed in the alcove of the ladies' parlor on the preceding night. "'Oh, Abel, how well you have managed to shield me, unworthy that I am, "'from all reproach,' she murmured, in a tremulous voice. "'Nay, dear, do not speak so of yourself. "'If I have tried to lift the burdens and dispel the shadows from about you, it is because it would have been unjust for you to suffer from them and elfrida i have had this morning an exhaustive interview with our son ah yes yes what will roland think of my long ignoring him sighed the mother he knows now all about it the cruel slanderous deception practiced on you by the man stukeley when he made you believe that the marriage with saviola was illegal and left you no other alternative than to do as you did AND NO SHADOW OF IMPLIED BLAME IS FELT BY ROLAND, ONLY REVERENTIAL TENDERNESS AND COMPASSION FOR ALL THAT YOU HAVE HAD TO SUFFER FOR SO MANY YEARS, FROM THE DIABOLICAL VILLAINY OF ONE MAN. ROLAND IS IMPATIENT TO SEE YOU, MY DEAR, AS SOON AS YOU CAN ADMIT HIM. MY INCOMPARABLE HUSBAND, BREATHED THE LADY, PENETRATED BY HER PERCEPTION OF HIS UTTER UNSELFISHNESS AND SUPERIORITY TO EVERY FEELING OF JEALOUSY. AH, HOW YOU exaggerate, DEAR, HE SAID WITH A SMILE. "'Then, will you see Roland?' he inquired. "'When you please,' she answered. He arose, stooped and kissed her forehead, and left the room. In a few moments the door opened, and Roland entered. The blood rushed to the lady's face, and then left it paler than before. She held out both hands to receive him. "'My son, oh my son, can you forgive me?' she wailed. Roland dropped on one knee and lifted her hands to his lips in silent reverence. Then he arose and folded her in his arms, still in silence. "'Speak to me, Roland,' she said at last, when he had drawn a chair and seated himself at her side. "'Dear mother,' he said very gently, "'I have heard your whole story from the lips of my stepfather. My honoured father, I should rather say, for truly he has done a father's part and given a father's love to me, and I feel for him the deepest love, respect, and compassion I wish from my soul that at my hands the demon who has wronged you so bitterly could receive his punishment. No, no, my son, from your hands his punishment would be sinful revenge. From the hands of the law which has seized him it will be retributive justice. Roland, how much, if anything, can you remember of your infancy before you were cast upon these shores? she suddenly inquired. Not very much clearly, dear mother, but I do remember a country place where there were many cows and some calves, fruit trees, flowers, and a house covered all over with flowering vines. I remember a rosy-cheeked woman in a white cap and white apron, who used to wash and dress me, and another little boy of about my age, and give us our milk and bread in a room that had a bright red brick floor. Nothing more, Roland? Oh, yes, I remember something that used to make a grand holiday for us, a great lady who used to come to see us and bring cakes and sugar plums and toys and clothes then I remember being in a ship on the sea for many days, but cannot recall how I got there or how I came away. These reminiscences I have often told to Aunt Sibby, but neither she nor I could ever make out by much study where that home of my infancy could have been located, or what seas I had sailed over. And did no face, no voice here ever associate itself with those earlier memories, inquired the mother. Yes, replied the young man, I was but four years old, when I last beheld the face of the beautiful woman who visited me at intervals, and whom I had been taught to call my aunt. But this last occasion was fixed in my memory from the childish delight I found in the hobby-horse she had brought down for me, and also by something very opposite that, my distress at seeing her great griefs and paroxysms of sobs and tears at leaving me. These impressed the lady's face and voice indelibly on my memory so that the image and the tone survived everything else in my picture of the past. I was ten years old when I first saw Mrs. Force at our school examination, but her face and her voice troubled me with fancies, that they had both once been familiar and beloved. Mother, I remembered your presence in the home of my infancy, though I remembered little else about it, and I recalled your face and voice when I met you again six years later on this side of the world, though I could not identify you with the angel of my fancy." yet I always loved you in both characters, though I never ventured to show my affection, and I somehow perceived your love for me, though you never showed it. A veil was between us, said Elfrida Force. Yes, a veil, but so thin that we saw each other through it. Why, Mother dear, even our little Rosemary perceived this, for she often told me that she believed you loved her for my sake more than for her own. Today she told me that when she was in distress on my account— it was only to you she could go for sympathy, and that was true," murmured the lady. "And mother, dear, what treasures I have realized in my new-found sisters! Odalite, always kind to me because Leonidas loved me. Odalite has been most affectionate today. Wynnette, charming Wynnette, has been so openly fond of me as to rouse the jealousy of Mister Samuel Grandiere, who remonstrated in elegant style this way." Drot it all, Wynnette. "'You make more of Roland than you ever did of me, "'though I am to be your husband.' "'And what did our Wynnette say to that?' Inquired Mrs. Force, with a smile. "'She answered, "'Well, it is written that a man shall forsake his father and his mother, "'and cleave to his wife. "'But it is nowhere written that a woman shall forsake her darling brother "'to cleave to another fellow. "'And she hugged me tighter and kissed me closer than before. "'And little Elva?' inquired the lady. "'Sweet Elva!' tender, loving Elva. She could not ever have been sweeter, kinder, tenderer to me than she has always been. Elva is the sweetest of all my sweet sisters. She is a dear child, breathed the lady. Then, after a little pause, and Rosemary, she inquired, Mother, with your consent, and I am sure we shall have your consent, Rosemary will be my wife. Dear, true-hearted little mite, she would have given herself to me, even if I had been nothing more than a little skipper's mate, under the ban of suspected piracy. Her love for me was so warm, her faith in me so true. I am glad that I have the rank and wealth to offer her which will make me acceptable to her relations. But, Mother dear, General Anglesia is waiting to speak to you. Then go and bring him in, and, Roland, you need not retire, said the lady. Chapter 48 The Meeting of Old Friends Angus Anglesia entered the room, ushered in by Roland and followed by Mr. Force. Mrs. Force arose from her chair to meet her old friend, who took her hand and bowed over it respectfully. "'I am very glad to see you after so many years,' said Mrs. Force, as Roland drew forward a chair for the visitor. "'I wish with all my heart and soul that our meeting had been earlier. It would then have saved much misunderstanding and suffering,' said General Inglésia, with a deep sigh, as he took his seat by her side. "'The past is past,' said the lady. one in this world has something to bear,' "'All things considered, we have had but a small share of the universal burden,' cheerfully remarked Force. "'I have brought some very important documents here to place in your hands,' said Anglesia, beginning to sort a parcel of papers that he held. "'You have taken much trouble to bring me these documents. How can I thank you sufficiently?' murmured the lady. "'But I need no thanks for doing my duty. This is the will of the late Antonio Saviola.' by which he leaves all his possessions to his grand-nephew, Rolando Saviola," said the general, laying the largest document on a small stand in front of the lady's chair. She bowed and took it up. "'This is the certificate of your marriage, with Luigi Saviola, and this is a certificate of the baptism of your son. These documents were necessary to establish your son's right to the inheritance of the Saviola estates,' he continued, placing two other papers on the table. These also the lady took up, with a bow of thanks. Mr. Force will tell you how all these came into my possession, if he has not already done so. And now, dear lady, having surrendered my trust, I must take my leave for the present. I have been cautioned by your physician, who is waiting in the parlour below, not to make my visit too long. I shall remain in Washington some time, and I hope I shall be permitted to see you often, said Anglesia, as he arose to leave the room. Must you go? "'Then return soon, come often. "'Do come and spend the evening with us. "'I am quite recovered, I assure you, "'and shall join my family party in the drawing-room after dinner,' "'said the lady, detaining the hand that he had given her. "'I will do so with pleasure,' returned the general, "'and with a low bow he relinquished her hand and left the room. "'His exit was followed by the entrance of the doctor "'to make his daily visit. "'He expressed much satisfaction on finding his patient so much improved.' and when Mrs. Force spoke of her wish to join her family in the drawing-room, the doctor made no objection to the proposed measure. As soon as he had gone, the lady dismissed her other two visitors, Abel Force and Roland, telling them that she meant to dress and go down into the parlor, where they might rejoin her. The two men left the room. A half-hour later, Elfrida Force was seated in the alcove at the rear of the saloon, surrounded by her daughters, her young friends, and her old Maryland neighbors, all of whom rejoiced over her as one who, if not risen from the dead, had at least passed safely through a terrible crisis, and risen from a most dangerous illness. All the gentlemen of the circle were absent, having gone with Roland, who was to pass through some necessary formalities before he could be released from bonds, and set entirely at liberty. So it turned out that the large party and the alcove was a hen convention, and the subject they discussed was a double wedding, when and where to come off, leonidas had that day pleaded for an immediate marriage urging with much reason the long time that he and his beloved had been obliged to wait and the repeated disappointments they had been fated to suffer and mr force had replied that he would consult mrs force on the subject and give him an answer as soon as possible mr force had in fact resolved to leave the matter to be determined by his wife Roland had also pleaded for an early wedding, arguing that he would be compelled to go to Italy to take possession of his estates, and that after all that he and his sweetheart had endured, they might really expect to be made happy. Mrs. Hedge and Miss Grandiere promised to take the matter into consideration, and give him an answer in due time. And now all the women and girls were freely discussing the subject. There should be a double wedding, that was a fixed fact. Leonidas and Odalite, Roland and Rosemary, should be married at the same place and at the same time. But in what place and what time? In the city of Washington, within a week, or in St. Mary's County, within a month? That was the question that occupied the ladies' circle. There was so much to be said on both sides. It would save time, trouble, and expense to have the double wedding come off in Washington. But then, as Roland and Rosemary were to sail for Europe immediately after their marriage— it seemed a pity that they should not look once more upon old scenes, and meet once more old friends before their departure. You see, the matter resolved itself at length into a question of convenience or of sentiment, and inasmuch as it was a convention of women who sat upon the subject, the decision may be anticipated, as given in the favor of sentiment. The weddings, therefore, were to be celebrated with great pomp at All-Faith Church, Mondrier and Oldfield, in St. Mary's County, that is to say, the double marriage ceremony was settled to be performed at All-Faith Church, the wedding breakfast to be served for both parties at Mondreer, and the evening reception to be held at Oldfield. After which Leonidas and Odalite would depart to spend their honeymoon at their own little estate of Greenbushes, and Roland and Rosemary would leave for New York en route for Europe. The ladies had settled this quite to their satisfaction before the gentlemen all returned with the good news that all formalities had been duly observed, and now roland was a free man without the smallest suspicion of a blemish on his honor. And now said Abel Force, we may all go down into Maryland as soon as we please and show enderby and anglesea what our country life is like for they have both promised to be our guests for a season. That will be delightful, and I am rejoiced to hear it said mrs Force very cordially at which the two invited guests bowed. Later on that evening, when Elfrida Force found herself alone with her husband in their chamber, she said, "'We cannot go down to Mondrier in less than a week. I must write to-morrow to have the house prepared for the reception of our visitors. And while that work is going on, I must do some shopping here for the two girls. You know they cannot be married without clothes.' "'Without clothes? Good Lord, no!' exclaimed the squire. And he gave in immediately. The next day Mrs. Force wrote to her housekeeper at Mondrier addressing that worthy woman as Mrs. Anglesia, lest with her true name on the envelope the missive might not reach her, or, if it did, might offend her, but addressing her so for the last time, for after announcing the advent of her family and visitors at Mondreer, and instructing the housekeeper in regard to the preparations to be made for their accommodation, Mrs. Force wrote briefly of the facts which had come to light concerning the impostor who had called himself Colonel Angus Anglesia, but who was really Bernstukley, an ex-midshipman in the Royal Navy, long an adventurer, and lately a pirate. She suppressed only one fact, the existence of Stookley's wife and family at Angleton, and this she kept in mercy to the deceived woman, since there could be no good come of revealing it. She ended by advising the Californian to drop the name Anglesia, to which the man who had given it to her had no sort of right, and to take back that of her late husband, who had had every claim on her love and faith. She counseled her to do this the more especially, as the real Angus Anglesia was to be one of their visitors at Mondreer. Having dispatched this letter by the morning's mail, Mrs. Force ordered a carriage, and in company with Mrs. Hedge, Odalite, and Rosemary, drove out to purchase wedding finery for the two brides-elect. Two days later, all the grandiers, together with Mrs. Hedge, Rosemary, and Miss Sibby Bayard, left Washington for St. Mary's partly on account of the expense and inconvenience of sleeping in lodging-houses, and eating at hotel restaurants, and partly as an advance guard to go before and prepare the way for the wedding parties. Mr. and Mrs. Force, with their family and guests, expected to follow in about ten days, or as soon as the wedding outfit for the two brides could be completed, for the lady had undertaken the supervision of that part of the program young sam grandiere had pleaded hard to be allowed to marry wynnette at the same time that leonidas was to marry odalite and roland rosemary and neither mr nor mrs force raised any objection but wynnette herself resisted the proposal in a characteristic way no she said we must not think of marrying or giving in marriage while our countrymen are falling in battle or dying in hospitals by thousands and tens of thousands many also perishing for want of help and not hands enough at leisure from business or from pleasure to give it. No, I suppose it is necessary that these others should marry for good reasons. But you and I must wait for better time, Sam. Because, as soon as the double wedding is over and the two happy pairs gone, Elva and I intend to return to Washington and go to work in the hospitals. In the hospitals? What can you two do? Had been Sam's amazed exclamation and incredulous question— We may not be first-rate nurses, but we can help the nurses. We can obey orders, step lightly, speak softly, fetch and carry, and do any work we are put to do, and we mean to do it. And your father and mother mean to let you? Of course they do. That is what we all came home from Europe for. And papa and Mamma mean to offer their services, too. Well, if it were not for you and your parents, Wynnette, I should say that you were all the biggest fools in the world, and that each one of you was the biggest fool of all the rest— exclaimed the provoked lover, and if it were not you, who couldn't hit me back because you are a man and I am a girl, I should box your ears soundly for saying that, Mr. Samuel Grandiere. Oh, I shouldn't mind that, said Sam, with a laugh, and the honest young pair parted good friends, Sam going to escort his relations on their journey to St. Mary's. End of chapter 48